0: In this episode of Tell Me A Story, we hear more about Clara Costello and her four-year-old son, Ned, who have taken time out from their travelling adventure in the camper van named Winnie and are now parked up at Mermaid House. Whilst Ned explores with its gruff owner, Gabriel Liberty, Clara continues to transform the house, bringing it back to its former glory. But not everyone is happy with this arrangement. After being told of the presence of Clara and Ned by his little brother Jonah, eldest son Caspar is now on the warpath. Chapter 26 Caspar gave the matter no more than a minute's thought. He cancelled his plans for that evening, the opening of a new restaurant in Manchester, and phoned Damson, not that he held out much hope of speaking to her. Poor deluded damson, so fully immersed in mystical mumbo-jumbo that she was away with the fairies at the bottom of some sacred garden, getting high on pungent candles and herbal tea bags while extolling the merits of celestial sex. It vexed him that he couldn't remember the last sensible conversation they had shared. She was constantly on about biorhythms and her karma. It was like being with her in an Edward Lear poem at times. The words came out fluently enough but he was damned if he could understand a word she was saying. As far as he was concerned, she was going from bad to worse. It's all new-age funk, damson, he'd said, shallow and meaningless. Dare one ask how much you're paying for the privilege of being brainwashed? Darling Casper, I know you only have my best interest at heart, but, please, the reward of finding one's scented self is beyond measure. You should give it a try. Yes, he thought, when hell froze over. The idea that she could be taken in by such a massive con appalled him, though part of him admired the person who had set up the scam. As commercial ventures went, it had the potential to be a lucrative money spinner. Still waiting for some idiot in Northumberland to get off for his or her backside and answer the phone, he crossed one leg over the other and stared around him. Of all the things he had ever possessed, his loft apartment was the one from which he derived the most pleasure. It was a conversion of an old brewery warehouse in close proximity to Manchester's gay village, and though a high percentage of his neighbours were gay, they had good taste, were tidy, and seldom gave him much trouble. So long as they kept their mattress wrestling behind closed doors, he had no complaints. The local restaurants and wine bars weren't bad either, pandering to the strength of the local currency, the vibrantly pink pound. Since the day he'd moved in, he had felt at home. The stark barrenness of the place appealed to his keen sense of the aesthetic, not for him the wild confusion with which he had been surrounded while growing up at Mermaid House. He preferred everything stripped back to the purity of line and form, and that was exactly what he had achieved here. Polished wooden floors, white painted brickwork, large sheets of plate glass, stainless steel and slabs of granite gave him the austerity he craved. He'd kept away from colour too, never straying into the garish palette of vulgar tones for which so many people opted. The only relief to this hard-edged simplicity was a large cream leather sofa and a specially commissioned circular bed on the mezzanine level. But unless he could work a miracle in the next month or so, there was a danger that he would lose it. His car too. In his line of business he didn't need to own a car. A perk of the job was that he could have the use of more or less whatever he fancied. But such a transient arrangement didn't suit him. Outright ownership was what counted, and selling his Maserati would be a last resort. And he'd be damned before he did that. That was why his father had to see the sense in selling Mermaid House and freeing up its considerable capital. It was going to happen one day, no matter what. The old man couldn't stay there much longer, not at his age. "'so why not get it over and done with now "'and let his children have the benefit of the money "'that would come to them anyway?' "'It was spite that was stopping him from selling. "'It had been the same earlier that year "'when he'd approached his father for a loan "'to get the bank off his back. "'Enough is enough,' Gabriel had roared. "'Not another penny, Casper. "'So long as I'm breathing, "'you'll not scrounge another bean out of me.' "'At last, somebody in Northumberland answered the phone.' Rosewood Manor Healing Centre, announced a reedy voice, which sounded as though it needed a boot taking to it. This is an emergency, lied Casper, sitting upright and uncrossing his legs. I need to speak to Damson Liberty. Tell her it's her brother and that it's imperative she comes to the phone. Damson who? Damson Liberty, I mean Damson Ackerman, he repeated impatiently. He never could keep up with the changes to her surname. Peevishly, he added, just how many damsons do you have there? Oh, you mean damson. Hold the line and I'll see if she's available. You do that. Now trot along quick as you can and find her for me. Meanwhile, I'll cope with the pain of your absence by slipping a rope round my neck and pulling it tight. Drumming his fingers on the smooth leather sofa, he listened to the woman's footsteps recede down what he imagined was a dark, drafty passageway and in the minutes that passed, he went over what he was going to say to his sister. He had to attract her attention in the first nanosecond of their conversation. Let Damson run so much as an inch with the ball, and he would never get a coherent word out of her. She'd be off on one of her surreal planes of fantasy. What he needed to get across to her was that they had to work together on their father, persuade him to sell Mermaid House now, while the property boom was still at its height. Leave it till next year and they'd lose out. Despite what Jonah thought, every pound counted. For some annoyingly perverse reason, his brother seemed intent on missing the crucial point that they must cash in on a buoyant market. Just as he was woefully naive about the appearance of this unknown woman at Mermaid House. What the hell was their father up to? And just who was she? A gold digging opportunist who caught the whiff of money? he brought the flat of his hand down on the arm of the sofa with a loud smack, as if he didn't have enough to worry about without his father getting involved with a travelling new-age hippie. He could picture her perfectly, an irresponsible single mother who was shaven head, pierced all over and who clumped around in boots and khaki trousers that were three sizes too big for her. It was the thought of her getting her unwashed feet under the table at Mermaid House that was causing him to act without delay. He wanted Damson to understand that unless they took immediate action, they might find themselves out in the cold with a scheming new stepmother calling the shots. Gabriel Liberty wouldn't be the first or last old man to make a fool of himself over a much younger woman. Footsteps in his ear told him Damson was about to pick up the receiver. He felt himself relax and realised how tense he'd become. He knew that once he had his sister on board, it would be like old times and they would be invincible. But he was wrong. They weren't Damson's footsteps, he had heard. They belonged to the woman with the reedy voice. Are you still there? she asked. More's the pity, yes. Where's Damson? I'm afraid she can't come to the phone just now. I've been told to tell you she's in the middle of a very important, holistic... But I need to speak to her! A timid silence seeped down the line, followed by the sound of a loud gong. I'm terribly sorry, the woman simpered. "'I'm going to have to go. I should ring back later if I were you.' "'And if I were you, I'd have a full frontal lobotomy,' he slammed down the phone. "'Now what?' "'He'd have to deal with the problem direct. "'Scooping up his keys from the glass bowl on the table by the front door, "'he locked his apartment, took the lift down to the garages on the ground floor, "'and slipped behind the wheel of his Maserati. "'He nosed the car into the early evening traffic.' and tried to steady his temper by switching on the CD player, at the same time focusing his thoughts on the smoothness of the drive. It worked. By the time he had picked up the A6 and had driven through Disley, he could feel the knots easing in his neck and shoulders. He knew he shouldn't let things get the better of him, and he knew too that as long as Damson was under the thumb of those hippies up in Northumberland, he could no longer rely on her. But old habits died hard. "'He still saw her as his rock. "'As children, she'd always been the more daring and cunning of the two of them. "'If ever he thought he was losing his nerve, "'it was Damson who reassured him that nothing could go wrong. "'But where was she now when he needed her support and reassurance? "'Hanging around with a bunch of navel-gazing screwballs "'who had as much chance of finding their inner selves "'as he had of becoming the next Queen of England. "'The tension was building again in his shoulders.' and he tried not to think of how much he missed Damson. It was ages since he'd last seen her. Val's funeral, probably. He pressed his foot down on the accelerator and sped on towards Mermaid House and the devious woman who had designs on his father. She might have met his younger brother and concluded that he was as much of a threat to her plans as a wet paper bag, but she hadn't reckoned on coming face to face with Casper Liberty. Chapter 27 The day had gone well for Archie. The shop had been busy from the moment he had opened. A cold, north-easterly wind had provided him with a steady flow of day-trippers, coming in for a browse and a warm. there had also been a number of more serious customers, like the well-dressed couple who wanted to furnish a cottage in Castleton, which they were letting to the holiday trade. Naturally, we don't want to fill it with anything new and expensive, the wife had said in a tight, haughty voice. Not when cheap tat will do the job perfectly well. And what a lot you seem to have. I suppose it's all clean. Ignoring the implied slur, Archie smiled and got on with offloading as much furniture and knick-knacks as he could and arranging for its delivery on Monday morning. Another couple had come in soon after them, a husband and wife in matching fleeces, whom he recognised from their monthly trawl of his shop. They were dealers from Buxton, who made it their business to check out the bottom end of the market for the antiques of tomorrow. It always surprised him what they picked from his shelves. Last month it had been an ugly chrome ashtray, one of those silly things on a stand that always got knocked over. Today it had been a Bakelite clock. He couldn't see the attraction in Bakelite. In fact, he hated it. It reminded him of when he had been in his bedroom as a child, listening to his father shouting at his mother downstairs. To keep himself awake, just in case his mother needed his help, he would leave his bedside lamp switched on, but then it would overheat and give off a horrible fishy smell. Alone in the shop now, he was locking up. Samson had given Bessie a lift home earlier so that she could take her time to get ready for their big Saturday night out at the pictures. Just as he was slipping the last of the chains and bolts across the door, the telephone rang. Because Archie was thinking of his mother, He rushed through to the office and snatched up the receiver, fearing the worst. "'Is that Mr Merriman at second best?' asked a woman. an assured young woman. "'Yes, it is. What can I do for you?' "'You might not remember me, but my name is Clara Costello, and my son and I... "'Of course I remember you. How are you? Still enjoying the delights of Deaconsbridge?' "'Yes, but not quite in the way I thought I might.' I know it's a bit late in the day, but I've got a proposition for you. Have you got a moment? I'm all ears. When he heard what she'd had to say, he laughed. Well, I think I could manage that. I'll put it in the diary for Monday afternoon, around three o'clock. That's soon enough for you? Yes, that'll be fine. Do you need directions? No, thanks. I've a nose on me like a bloodhound. After he'd rung off, he reached for the diary to make a note of his appointment with Clara Costello at Mermaid House. It was only then that he remembered he'd be delivering an entire house's worth of cheap tat for Mr and Mrs Hoity Toity over in Castleton that morning. Oh well, he and Samson would just have to make sure they got through the job in double-quick time. Feeling surprisingly chipper, he left the shop to walk home. He crossed the square, waved at Shirley through the window of the Mermaid Café, then made his way slowly up the steep hill of Cross Street. The early evening air was sharp, and it sliced through his thin jacket. He paused to catch his breath in the usual spot, leaning against the rail. The coldness of the metal scorched his hand, and he wondered if they were in for a late snap of winter. Just before they were on the edge of April, and had recently experienced a few welcome days of spring weather, didn't mean they were out of the woods. He could recall many an April morning when he'd had to scrape ice off the windscreen. Then he remembered he'd left his car at the shop. He'd driven to work that morning because he'd taken his mother in with him on the pretext of needing her help again. I'm knee deep in stuff that needs cleaning, he told her the night before. I don't suppose you'd come in for another day and give me a hand with it, would you? By the time he'd parked the Volvo outside his house, it was almost seven. He'd have to get his skates on now or they'd miss the opening minutes of the film. As he let himself into the house at the back, he called to his mother. It was the moment in the day he dreaded most, other than first thing in the morning when he knocked on Bessie's bedroom door. He told himself repeatedly not to keep imagining the worst, but the memory of finding Bessie on the floor of her own home last year was difficult to shake. Hearing voices and thinking she was in the sitting room watching the television, he pushed open the door and found her rigged up in one of her best dresses, collar and buttons askew. Listening attentively to an earnest young man who could be no more than seventeen, he was reading from a copy of the watchtower, and next to him was an older woman pouring tea. All three looked up as he came into the room. "'Hello,' he said, cheerfully enough, but inwardly annoyed. "'What's going on here?' Archie, his mother said, unaware of the tension that his present had caused. This is Ricky and his Hummer. I think she means mother, the woman said, lowering the teapot. And I think she may have lost track of the time, Archie said firmly. We're due out shortly, so I think it would be better if we brought this cosy chat to an end. He was livid now. How dare these people think they could take advantage of a defenceless woman and indoctrinate her with their religious beliefs? Another time, perhaps, the woman said smoothly, rising to her feet and pulling on her coat. She'd probably been thrown out of more homes than Archie at had Hot Dinners. When he had hustled them to the front door, he realised how uncharacteristically rude he was being. Look, he said, I'm sorry, it's just that you could have been anyone, robbers, murderers, you name it. She's too sweet-natured for her own good. She thinks well of everyone. A fault with which more people should be blessed the woman said, with a smile of such forgiveness that he felt twice as churlish. Watching them close the wrought iron gate behind them, Archie noticed that the boy's trousers were too short for his long thin legs and his conscience pricked again. He wished he could replay the scene and deal with it better. It's not your religion or beliefs I have a problem with, he wanted to call after them. It's the world we live in, a dog-eat-dog world that takes advantage of innocent children and old ladies. Later, as he was driving to the cinema, he thought how heavy-handed he had been. He knew he'd hurt his mother's feelings by behaving like a boorish, arrogant bully, taking it upon himself to censor her enjoyment, which was bad enough, but what pained him more was that he had reminded himself of his father. Determined not to let this thought put a dampener on the evening, and knowing that Bessie was still upset, he said, I'm sorry about turfing Ricky and his mother out. But in this day and age, you really ought to be more careful who you let into the house. What she said next made him feel even worse. Lonely, Archie, on my bone. Cut to the quick, he drove on in silence. Then he thought of something that might cheer her up and told her about the call he had had from Clara Costello. She's only gone and got herself working for that dreadful man I told you about at the hospital. You know, the one who was so rude to Dr. Singh. I hope he doesn't take advantage of her. Chapter 28 Mr Liberty, please don't think you can take advantage of me. I'm really not that sort of girl. Gabriel scowled. She was merciless in the way she kept twisting his words, but two could play at that game. Miss Costello, I may have lost some of my social skills of late, and the use of plain English may have changed since I last made anyone such an offer, but as far as I'm aware, I believe I only suggested I'd cook you supper. There's not the slightest chance of me wanting to seduce you, as disappointing as that might be to you. Ha! Let's see you back that one back. They were standing in the dining room, where she'd been hard at work all day. She was polishing a pair of silver candlesticks he hadn't seen in a long while. He couldn't even remember where they had come from. She stopped what she was doing, folded the yellow duster in half, then in half again, and turned away to place the candlesticks on the stone mantle above the fireplace. Without looking at him or giving him an answer, she said, What are you hiding behind your back? He cleared his throat and mentally conceded the point to her. She was good, very good. But now they'd got to the tricky part. This was when he had to apologise. Ah, it's a peace offering. She turned slowly and he held out a tightly wrapped bunch of red tulips, their petals still closed. She didn't say anything. Feeling a desperate compulsion to fill the awkward silence with words, he heard himself rambling out of embarrassment. You rather rudely asked me the other day, when was the last time i bought any flowers? Well... I saw these when I was in Deaconsbridge this afternoon, and they reminded me of you. She made no move to take the tulips from him, but lowered her gaze to them. He could see the curious doubt in her eyes. Reminded you of me, eh, she said. Care to explain? He cleared his throat again. I've always thought of tulips as an efficient-looking flower, upright and business-like. They give the impression of not wanting to waste their time frolicking about the flowerbeds. In short, they strike me as purposeful, like, like you. Her gaze met his. It was softer than it had been. Hush now, Mr Liberty, go easy on the schmooze, or you'll have me blushing to the tips of my ears. But you mentioned they were an apology. For what exactly? You wouldn't be trying to extract blood from a stone, would you? But of course, that goes without saying. So, come on, let's hear it. And no mumbling. I like apologies to be loud and clear, then I can be sure they're genuine. Correlling what was left of his shaky resolve, he pulled at his nose, scratched his chin, and tried to recall the exact words he had prepared for this moment while driving back from town. He pictured himself as a newsreader, lifting the words from an auto-cue, but trying to add some meaning to them. I just want to say that I have been left with a nasty taste in my mouth after that incident with your son. I had no business prying into your affairs and I wanted you to know just how sorry I am. His mission completed, he clumsily thrust the flowers at her and turned to flee. He was nearly at the door when she said, That was really quite good, Mr Liberty. Full marks for content, but running off before taking a final bow loses you valuable points when it comes to artistic expression. He didn't risk looking at her, kept his face to the door. Please don't make fun of me, not when I'm trying to be nice, she finished for him. Now why don't you come back here and let me thank you properly, that's if you have the nerve. It was a challenge he couldn't refuse, he'd never been short of nerve. Who did she think she was to accuse him of such a thing? But when he stood in front of her again and she raised herself on her toes and softly kissed his cheek, He wondered if he hadn't met his match. "'We'll make a decent human being of you yet, Mr Liberty,' she smiled. Caught so thoroughly off guard, he couldn't stop himself from lifting a hand to his cheek and touching, with his fingertips, the spot where he could still feel the light pressure of where her lips had been. Then he discovered he hadn't shaved that day. Had he even washed? Burning with self-loathing, he edged away from her. "'Still smiling at him,' she said, I hope you're not going to withdraw your offer of supper. With a supreme effort of will and managing to sound his normal self, he said, You should know well enough by now that I'm a man of my word, but don't expect anything other than plain fare. I've got some boil-in-the-bag cod and parsley sauce, knocking about in the freezer. Joni keeps buying for me and I keep forgetting to eat it. Is that good enough for her ladyship and her son? Quite good enough. Talking of Ned, where is he? Glad of the diversion, he led her out of the dining room and along the hall. I took the liberty, no pun intended, of buying him a little something while I was in Deaconsbridge. In the kitchen, Ned was kneeling on a chair, his head bent over the table. When they came in, he looked up. Mummy, Mr Liberty brought me a scrapbook and some postcards. I've been drawing a picture of his house. Do you like it? Out of the corner of his eye, Gabriel watched the boy's mother anxiously. Had he overstepped the mark, would she think he was interfering? But he'd only done it because the boy had told him during their walk before lunch that she'd forgotten to buy them for him. We're going to keep a diary of our holiday, Ned had said, releasing himself from Gabriel's grasp and running on ahead like a giddy spring lamb. Don't go too far without me, he'd called after the lad, his voice catching on the wind. Your mother said you had to stay close to me. And if I have to go home and tell her I've lost you, she'll have my guts for garters. The boy had slowed down until Gabriel caught him up. What are guts and garters? he'd asked. Prodding at his small belly, he said, Guts are inside you there, your squelchy innards, and garters are elastic bands that people used to wear years ago to hold up their socks. Considering this, the boy had unzipped his anorak and felt his stomach through his clothes. But how would mummy get your guts out? Depending how angry she was, and bearing in mind I'd just told her I'd lost you, she might take a large knife to me and cut my stomach open. He drew a line from his own chest down to his trouser belt. Then she'd take a stick and coil my innards around it. And then? Well, she might hang them up on the washing line and let them dry before cutting them into the required lengths for the garters. Would she sew you up afterwards? Probably with the biggest, rustiest and bluntest needles she could lay her hands on. They continued their walk, the child's small, warm hand now locked in his. Gabriel was taking Ned to the copse, where he hoped to show him a badger set. As they took the downward slope of the field, their muddy shoes skidding on the wet grass and a nippy wind hustling them from behind, Ned said, ''I don't believe you, Mr Liberty.'' "Hm? what don't you believe?'' About mummy and your squelchy bits. You think I'd tell you lies? You were joking, weren't you? Are you frightened of my mummy? Good Lord, frightened of a slip of a girl like your mother? Now it's you who's joking. But standing in the kitchen, as Gabriel awaited her verdict on his purchases, which had now been added to the bonanza of coloured pencils and glue that covered the table, he had to admit that part of him was scared of her, of stepping on her toes and offending her. He watched her move in beside the lad. She stroked the top of his head absently and studied his drawing. Ned, it's brilliant. How clever of you to draw the tower so well. She placed the tulips on the table and bent down to his level for a closer inspection. But, my goodness, who is that handsome man? The boy beamed. Mr. Liberty. Curious, Gabriel drew near to see how he had been depicted. Expecting to see a scowling old man with wild hair, he saw instead an enormous matchstick man who dwarfed the tower of his house, which bore an uncanny resemblance to the leaning one in Pisa. His massive head was wearing a ridiculously large pair of ears, and stretched between them was her crescent-shaped smile. "'You've forgotten my nose,' he said. The boy reached for a coloured pencil and gave the matchstick man a pastel pink swirl that obliterated one of his eyes. Perfect, his mother praised him. And thank you, Mr Liberty, you couldn't have given Ned a better present. It was very kind and thoughtful of you. Twirling the pencil in his hand, then trying to balance it on his top lip, the boy said, Mr Liberty said he'd help me with some of the writing tomorrow. "'But only if you're good,' Gabriel said, moving away from the table "'and crossing the kitchen to the freezer compartment above the fridge. "'When he had finished rummaging through the bags of frozen peas and sweetcorn "'and had found the stockpiled cod in parsley sauce, "'he realised that Miss Costello was standing behind him. "'What's that smirk on your face for?' he asked. "'You wouldn't be going soft on me, would you?' "'Of course not. I'm feathering my own bed.' By keeping the boy out of mischief, I'm ensuring that you get more work done. I don't want you to have an excuse for slacking. And while I'm not slacking, I'll defrost that for you tomorrow. And in case you're wondering, I'm referring to the freezer, not your frosty exterior. To round things off, Clara decided that they would eat their supper in the room she had spent all day cleaning. It had proved a lot less trouble to sort out than the kitchen. The dining room had been left to its own devices, and it was more a matter of treating neglect to a large dose of tender loving care. She'd started by throwing open the windows and letting in some much-needed fresh air, then vacuuming the parquet floor, the rugs and the curtains. Using a full-height ladder she'd found in an outhouse, and putting the vacuum cleaner onto its lowest setting so as not to shred the brittle fabric damaged by years of exposure to sunlight, she had carefully removed the thick blankets of dust Balls of fluff the size of walnuts were rounded up from under the mahogany table, chairs and the corners of the room, and thick-legged spiders found themselves given short shrift and abrupt change of dress. Next she dusted the faded wood panelling that went from floor to ceiling, and the framed antique maps of Derbyshire that hang on it. Then she cleared out the contents of the sideboard and the matching pair of glass-fronted cabinets that stood either side of the fireplace. She immediately wished she hadn't. There was so much of it, quite apart from the hundreds of crystal wine glasses, brandy balloons and whisky tumblers, all of which needed careful washing. There was a mind-blowing quantity of elegant but tarnished silverware, teapots, coffee pots, cream jugs, coasters, sugar tongs, snuff boxes, candlesticks, candle snuffers and tea strainers. And every item had a brother or sister. It occurred to Clara as she spread out the sheets of newspaper and set to with a silver polish that everything in the house, except its owner, was multiplied by a factor of at least three. It had been the same in the kitchen yesterday. If she found one Kenwood mixer, she unearthed a whole family of them. It made her wonder who had collected such a hoard. Surely not Mr Liberty. His wives, probably. Perhaps out of pure devilment he had considered leaving the mess for his children to deal with when he departed, just to teach them one last lesson. Now, as Clara set the table for supper, with cutlery, mats, glasses, her lovely red tulips, and a candelabra at one end, she thought of the youngest member of the Liberty family she had met last night. He had seemed pleasant enough, which paradoxically had made her dislike him on principle. His slightly hesitant manner had irritated her, had made her want to say, how? Dare you live on the doorstep and do so little to help? Anyone can fetch the weekly shop. How about scrubbing the floor or cleaning the toilet? Mr Liberty seemed greatly amused by the splendour of the setting for their simple boil-in-the-bag supper. He had wanted to eat in the kitchen, but Clara had insisted on showing off her efforts, barring anyone entry until she had everything just right. Ta-da! she chorused when at last she allowed him and Ned to come in. She watched his face as he stood for a moment, taking in the scene, a large tray of steaming food in his hands. Even to her critical eyes, the room looked and smelt magnificent. Darkness was pressing in from outside, so she drawn the heavy brocade curtains and lit the room with candles, their flickering flames bouncing soft light off the furniture and panelled walls. There was a warm, burnished look of opulence to the room, "'and copious amounts of fresh air and lavender polish "'had seen off the musty, depressing smell of neglect. "'Ned's eyes were wide and luminous. "'It's like Christmas,' he said, "'only bigger.' "'Mr Liberty set down the tray on the table "'and made a low bow. "'Another day, another miracle for you, Miss Costello. "'I applaud you once again. "'A small point, though. "'Where did all the candles come from?' I had no idea I had so many. I found them on a shelf in the laundry room. Some of them are so old they're probably medieval church relics. Well, just so long as we don't go up in flames, will we be warm enough in here, do you think? He cast his eyes over to the empty grate in the fireplace, where she had placed a pottery jug of daffodils picked from the garden. I wanted to light a fire, but thought I wouldn't risk it. As well as antique candles, you're probably the owner of a ton of antique soot. I'll get hold of a chimney sweep, but for now, I'm starving. Despite the blandness of the meal, it was their most convivial so far. The second bottle of Chablis they were roaring through might have had something to do with that. Ned, who was sitting on two cushions and a telephone directory to get him up to the right height, and who was surprisingly perky for one whose bedtime should have been more than an hour ago, was telling her Mr Liberty's gory tale of guts and garters, when Clara heard a sound and interrupted. What was that? She cocked her head towards the door. What was what? asked Mr Liberty. She allowed him to topper her her glass. I must be spending too much time with you. I'm going mad and hearing things. He crashed his glass against hers. Here's to you. May you always speak your mind. Just you try and stop me. I suspect I'd need a Panzer tank to stop you doing something you put your mind to. They were both mid-laugh when Clara noticed the door slowly open at the far end of the room. She froze. Mr Liberty turned to see what she was looking at. A smartly dressed man had come in. Clara would have recognised him anywhere. It was a long-faced rude man from the supermarket with the trolley of bargain-priced champagne. Hello, father, he said in a pompously creepy voice. Do hope I'm not interrupting anything. Chapter 29 As a matter of fact, you are interrupting. What is this? Suddenly everyone's treating my home as if it was Liberty Hall. Casper forced a smile. Never underestimate those old jokes, Dad. He stepped further into the candlelit room his leather-soled shoes sounding loud in the sudden hush. Liberty Hall, indeed. His words were directed at his father, but he was more interested in Gabriel's dining companions, in particular the woman, the scheming Miss Costello. Though she was scruffily dressed in khaki trousers, he'd got that right, and a loose-fitting T-shirt stained with something he didn't care to think about too deeply, and had the kind of childish, unattractive haircut he never approved of on a grown woman, she didn't match up to the pierced, tattooed, and new-age scrounger he'd pictured, but appearances could be deceiving. It was odd, though. The more he looked at her and the child, the more he felt he'd come across them before. But where? He could see that she was appraising him, and that his presence was not to her liking, which confirmed his hunch she was working a number on the old man. But now knew that she'd been confronted with a spanner in the works. Well, get ready, little lady. "'You're going to be out of here before you get your feet any further under the table. "'Casper, are you going to stand there all night gawping at us?' his father barked. "'Or are you going to share with us what's brought you here? "'Or perhaps you were just passing through and thought perhaps you'd check up on dear old Peter, "'make sure he hadn't snuffed it in his bed?' "'Passing through was exactly the cover Casper had decided to use, "'and he slipped seamlessly into his prepared speech, pulling out a chair beside his father.' and imposing himself on the cosy scene of candles, flowers and best silver. As it happens, I am just passing through, he said. I've been to see baby bro Jonah. I had no idea how concerned he is about you. Gabriel snorted. Ha! That'll be the day when any of you worry about me. Caspar laughed expansively. Come on, Dad, there's no need to take that line. You know jolly well that we all care about you. But where are your manners? Aren't you going to introduce me to your dinner guests? He leaned across the table, hand outstretched. Caspar Liberty, your humble servant and eldest custodian of my father's welfare. And you are? He had intended his words as a warning shot, but when his hand was ignored and Gabriel said, Is there any need to introduce you? He felt the full force of one of his father's warning shots. "'Sorry, Dad, you've lost me. You know I'm no good at cryptic clues. "'That's much more your scene, what with all the crosswords you do. "'Any chance of a glass of that wine?' "'Cut it out, Casper. I know exactly why you're here, and it won't do.' "'Gabriel slapped one of his knobbly hands on the table. "'The cutlery rattled, and the small boy with staring dark eyes "'jumped and leaned in towards his mother. "'Steady on, Dad. You're frightening your guests.' an unforgivable breach of etiquette in anyone's book. In some quarters, poisoning of one's guests is an acceptable mishap, but to scare them to death... Casper, while I'm familiar with the fact that you listen to nothing but the echo of your own voice, my guests are not so well informed, so will you do them a great kindness and shut up? I think it's time we were going, Mr Liberty. The scheming minx was on her feet now and staring pointedly at him. But as she manhandled the child out of his seat and hooked his short legs around her waist, Casper saw how small she was, not the glowering Amazon she had appeared while seated. Quite insignificant, really. "'There's no need for you to leave, Miss Costello,' his father said. "'In fact, I would rather you stayed.' The voice was imperious as Caspar remembered it from his childhood. "'You'll stay right where you are, young man. You'll leave this room on my say-so and not before.' ''No can do, Mr Liberty. Ned's tired and I need to get him to bed. ''Same time tomorrow morning.'' ''As you wish, Miss Costello. Good night.'' ''What was all this? As you wish, Miss Costello and no can do, Mr Liberty. ''What kind of game did they think they were playing?'' The door closed silently behind her, signaling that Casper could get down to business. He pushed back his chair and turned to face his father. But Gabriel was ahead of him and gained the advantage by creaking to his feet. "'I hope you're satisfied, Casper,' he glowered down at him, "'because for the first time in a long while I was enjoying myself. "'But, as usual, you had to spoil everything. "'Nothing changes with you, does it?' "'Casper's jaw dropped. "'Good God, it was worse than he'd thought. "'The old fool had got it bad.' He didn't know whether to laugh or jump out of his seat in horror. He played it cool, preferring to extract as much embarrassing detail from his father as possible. I'm not sure what you're getting at, Dad. What exactly did I interrupt here this evening? He cast his eyes meaningfully over the remnants of the candlelit dinner. Standing by the fireplace, one clenched fist jammed into his side, the other on the mantel, His father stared at him. Then his withered features acquired a firmness that was both vital and tenaciously implacable. Inexplicably, he began to laugh. A nasty, sneering laugh that started as a low rumble until it grew into a full-blown body shaker before climaxing in a fit of wheezy coughing. "'Sweet Moses, any more attacks like that and the man would kill himself?' Casper stood up. "'You all right, Dad?' Gasping for breath, Gabriel swiped Caspar out of the way as if he were a fly. He moved back to the table and took a swig from his wine glass, then another. Just as he was confident that he had his breathing under control, he almost started to laugh again. The situation was hilarious. Bloody hilarious! Casper, poor, stupid, greedy Casper, thought his father had finally lost his marbles and fallen for the charms of a pretty girl. Well, let the arrogant buffoon think what he wanted. Are you going to tell me what you were laughing at, Dad? Using all his guile, Gabriel kept his face poker straight and joined Caspar by the fireplace. He put a fatherly arm around his son's shoulder. Caspar, I know this may come as a shock to you. To be honest, it's been a seismic shock to me. The thing is, I'm fairly well smitten with the lovely Miss Costello. But you must have grasped that. You've seen what a beautiful woman she is. She's stunning, isn't she? Intelligent, poised and utterly charming. Quite a catch for an old thing like me. To his delight, he felt his son stiffen and it was all he could do to stop himself grinning. He sighed, the sigh of a man hopelessly in love and continued to turn the screw. And for some reason that is quite beyond my comprehension... She seems besotted with me. So, what I'm trying to say is, and I know she's much too young for an old duffer like me, but how do you feel about a new stepmother? Your approval matters to me, you know. Chapter 30 There was little to be gained from telling Casper to calm down. Jonah had tried that already, only to provoke a louder and more incoherent burst. So he poured his brother a glass of wine. Caspar took the glass and tossed back half of its contents in one gulp. To Jonah's relief, it brought him to a standstill, and he repeated more calmly what he had said on his arrival at Church Cottage. This proves beyond all doubt that the old man is definitely losing it. You still haven't said... But Caspar was off again. I warned you something like this could happen, but would you listen to me? Oh, no, you had to carry on as you always do with your head buried in the sand. Maybe now you will take more notice of what I say. I might listen if you started talking sense. Joan replied, keeping his voice level. What's happened to cause such a rush of blood to your normally temperate head? Oh, please, save the witty sarcasm for your brain-dead pupils. Haven't you heard a word I've said? Every syllable, but I still haven't a clue as to what you're raving on about. Caspar's face hardened. Look, Jonah, our father is on the verge of marrying for the third time. Do you have any idea where that will leave us? Out in the cold, that's where. Who is he thinking of marrying? The gold-digging Miss Mop. But that can't be right, Jonah was stunned. Casper regarded him pityingly. "'Of course it's not, but I'm pleased to see that I'm finally getting through to you. "'We've got to put a stop to this nonsense. "'Any more of this light if you're going?' "'Jonah poured the remains of the bottle into Casper's empty glass. "'Reaching for the corkscrew, he opened a second, "'wondering if the joke he had played on his brother "'had been trumped by a bigger one from their father. "'He simply could not equate the assured woman he had met yesterday.' with anyone who'd be interested in marrying a man like Gabriel Liberty. Or was it possible that Caspar was right, that the efficient Miss Costello was nothing but a scheming gold digger? He recalled how jealous he had felt in the kitchen at Mermaid House, that she'd had an empathy with Gabriel that few other people ever had, least of all the members of his family. But despite this, he couldn't go along with Caspar's theory. There'd been nothing in her manner to suggest that she was up to anything so devious as fooling an elderly man into marrying her for financial gain. But then why was she at Mermaid House? He leaned against the rayburn. Right, Casper, tell me exactly what Dad said to you. Try to remember his exact words. Don't exaggerate. Casper rolled his eyes. Stop treating me like a fool, Jonah. I may have flunked university, which Dad has never let me forget, but credit me with if sufficient intelligence to read the signs and it was you who alerted me Casper rolled his eyes stop treating me like a fool Jonah I may have flunked university which dad has never let me forget but credit me with sufficient intelligence to read the signs and it was you who alerted me to what was going on in the first place if you hadn't told me on the phone last night just tell me what he said My, how snappy you are these days He asked me how I felt about having a new stepmother And I think that even you can grasp the significance of that He also said that he was smitten by the lovely Miss Costello And that she was equally besotted with him And he put his arm around my shoulders He shuddered and took a long sip of his wine I can't remember the last time he touched me Did he say anything else? "'Plenty, most of which makes me cringe to think of it. "'Once he got started, it was impossible to shut him up. "'He even asked for my advice as to where they should honeymoon, "'and if I thought it might be worth his while "'to see the quack about some Viagra. "'He's certifiable, if you ask me.' "'Put down his glass, tugged at the white cuffs of his shirt "'that poked from his jacket sleeves, "'then straightened his cufflinks. "'Do you think that's a line we could pursue? "'Put a stop to the marriage by proving he's not in his right senses.' Having listened to Casper, Jonah was doubly suspicious that his brother had been duped. Never in a million years could he see their father seeking advice about Viagra. That put the tin lid on it as far as Jonah was concerned. The more he thought about it, the more convinced he was that just as their father had enjoyed pulling a fast one on Dr. Singh with Miss Costello's help, so he had with Casper. But why couldn't Casper see that? Did the object of Dad's affections have anything to say on the matter? No, this all happened after she'd left us. They were in the middle of a romantic candlelit dinner when I arrived. And her son? Oh, he was there too. So a romantic dinner at toi, then. Casper looked at him hard. She could hardly have left him sitting on the doorstep with a bottle of pop and a bag of crisps. Sidestepping, Jonah said, "'I think our best policy is to stay quiet and see how things progress.' "'Oh, that's bloody typical of you, isn't it? "'Some tart is planning a move on our inheritance "'and you want to pretend nothing's going on. "'Don't you care that if Miss Costello becomes the third Mrs Liberty "'we can kiss goodbye to Mermaid House?' "'You speak as though, you have a right to it,' Jonah said. Caspar's expression grew tight "'and his nostrils flared just like their father's. "'That's because I do.' A share of Mermaid House is my birthright. I hardly need point out to you that it's what our mother would have wanted for each of us. There was absolutely nothing Jonah could say to this last dangerously weighted comment, so he kept quiet and waited for his brother to leave. The next morning Jonah's curiosity had got the better of him, and after calling in at QuickFit to have a new exhaust pipe fitted, he drove out on to Hollow Edge Moor. Thick banks of cloud were being dragged across the sky and a blustery wind buffeted the car. Rain was imminent. Only a few hardy walkers dressed in full-length cagouls with knapsacks were braving the elements up on the ridge, their distant figures leaning into the wind. Black-legged lambs sheltered with their mothers in the lee of a dry stone wall and the recent warm spring weather was now a distant memory. But the dismal nature of the day didn't bother Jonah, he found it invigorating. As the brooding outline of Mermaid House came into view, he felt a stab of doubt. What did he hope to achieve by seeing his father again? Two visits in one week, Jonah, Gabriel would sneer. Suddenly I'm the most popular man in the Peak District. He supposed that deep down he hoped he was right that his father had played a prank on Casper and might want to let him in on it. Sibling rivalry makes fools of us all, he muttered as he drove through the archway and parked alongside Miss Costello's camper van, noting that the large yellow skip was still in residence. He switched off the engine and felt nothing but contempt for himself. Why hadn't he just told Casper last night that he thought their father was having a laugh at his expense? Because they were all so used to fighting one another. Out of his car, he looked across the courtyard to see the energetic figure of Miss Costello "'hurling a cardboard box into the skip. "'Only the other day he'd wished he had the courage "'to clear the decks for his father, "'and now an outsider was doing precisely that. "'The thought irritated him. "'He strolled over, uncomfortably away "'that he was trying too hard to put on a casual air. "'Seeing him, but not stopping what she was doing, she said, "'You've got your exhaust fixed, then. "'And Dad's got you hard at work, even on a Sunday.' She tipped another box into the skip and a gust of wind caught some sheets of newspaper. She pushed them down hard. Wiping her hands on the back of her close-fitting jeans, she said, "'Understand this, Master Liberty. It's me who sets the agenda. I decide the hours I work.' "'I don't doubt that for a minute. Here, let me help you.' He expected her to refuse his offer, but she didn't, and between them they added a smelly, rolled-up rug to the pile of rubbish. "'Casper will be furious if he thinks you're chucking away the family heirlooms.' His tone was light, but she didn't say anything, merely reached for a black plastic sack and threw it on top of the rug. "'I believe you had the pleasure of meeting him last night,' he added. "'I'd had that pleasure already.' "'Really?' "'In the supermarket in Deaconsbridge. "'I decided then and there that he was the rudest, "'most self-centred, arrogant man I'd ever set eyes on.' Jonah tried not to smile. And did last night alter your opinion? She didn't answer him. Instead, she said, If you're looking for your father, he's in the library. He was clearly being dismissed and baffled. He wondered what he had done to deserve such frostiness. Miss Costello, you don't like me very much, do you? She paused, lifted her chin and looked him dead in the eye, her small face stern. Does that bother you? He took from her a dusty-dried flower arrangement, which Val had put together a long time ago, and placed it carefully on the skip. He was used to brutal honesty from his family, but not from someone he hardly knew. He decided to fight back, force her to drop the annoying deadpan manner he was sure she had adopted for his benefit. "'If you're going to be my stepmother,' he said mildly, "'don't you think we ought to make more of an effort to get along?' He watched her closely for a response. Well, what can I say, she said, her manner giving nothing away. I suppose you're right. How do you suggest we go about it, young Master Liberty? First, you can stop calling me Master Liberty. My name's Jonah. And second, you can be honest with me. Oh, I don't know whether that's a good idea. Families are rarely honest with each other, are they? There's always something we like to keep from each other. By the way, who spilled the beans about your father and me getting hitched? Dad told Casper last night. The conversation wasn't going at all how Joan had thought it would. Who was bluffing who? But he was determined to get a straight answer to a straight question. Miss Costello, please, will you level with me? She held up her hand. Don't be so formal. Call me mother or would you prefer mum? Please, he tried again. A straight answer for a straight question. Are you indulging my father by playing along with another of his self-satisfying games? As I always tell Ned, you must believe what you want to believe. In that case, I don't believe a word of what my father has told Casper, or that you're a gold digger on the make, as my brother thinks you are. She stuck out her chest and placed her hands on her hips provocatively. Is that because you don't fancy me in the role of stepmother? He knew she was teasing him but her playful tone and the sight of her breasts shown through her thin T-shirt were an unexpected turn-on. I'm afraid that imagining you as my stepmother would take too much suspense of disbelief. He lowered his gaze. He had no choice but to accept that he wouldn't get any further with her. Exasperated, he said, where did you say my father was? He's in the library with Ned. As Clara watched Jonah go inside, she almost felt sorry for him. What in the world was the incorrigible man up to now? He might have had the decency to warn her that not only was she his standing daughter, but also his fiance. How would they explain that to Dr. Singh? Chapter 31 On his way through the house to the library, Jonah noted the changes and improvements Miss Costello had single-handedly brought about. Whatever his feelings towards her, and he wasn't entirely sure what they were, he couldn't fail to be impressed by the effect that she had had on Mermaid House. There was a lightness about it that he hadn't felt in years. No, more than that, it was as though, with each room she had touched, the house was being coaxed out of mourning, something which had been going on for as long as he could remember. He poked his head round the dining-room door, which was ajar. He saw and smelt yet more telltale signs of Miss Costello's refreshing handiwork. Polished wood, flowers in the grate and on the table, sparkling glass and silverware on the shelves of the gleaming glass-fronted cabinets. The transformation was incredible. Hearing a squeal of high-pitched laughter, he carried on towards the library, calling to his father so that he couldn't be accused of turning up unannounced. He pushed open the door and braced himself for another in a long line of difficult encounters. But he had miscalculated his father's mood. Jonah, well I can't say I'm surprised to see you. Not when I'm suddenly flavour of the week, but your timing is perfect. Pull up a chair and help me. This cheeky whippersnapper has me on the run. The room hadn't yet received the Miss C treatment and after shifting a dusty pile of National Geographic's from a chair to the floor, Jonah joined them in the bay window, where a game of drafts was in progress. The cheeky whippersnapper smiled exuberantly at him. I've just taken another of Mr Liberty's pieces, he said proudly. He waved the grubby ivory disc in front of Jonah. And look at all these other pieces I've got. Enough of the boasting, young man. Now shush! I need peace and quiet while I think about my next move. What do you advise, Jonah? Jonah observed the board, the same board on which he had learned to play both chess and drafts, games his father had always played ruthlessly to win, no matter the age or ability of his opponent. On several occasions Val had told him to give Jonah a fighting chance. He's only a child, how will he ever improve if you don't encourage him? looking at the board now and its scene of one-sided carnage, Jonah could only conclude that either Ned was a child genius or Val's advice had finally been heeded. Gabriel was down to just a few pieces. "'Strikes me that you're in real trouble,' Dad," he said. "'Any move open to you looks risky to me.' "'And since when have I ever been afraid of taking a risk?' Licking his mottled lips, Gabriel nudged one of his few remaining pieces forward. There now, you little rascal, pick the bones out of that. Lost in the depths of the leather chair opposite, and resting his chin on a knee drawn up close to his chest, the boy stared hard at the board, his bright eyes flicking from left to right. The only sound in the room was Gabriel's wheezing. Was it louder than it had been? and the steady ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece. Jonah willed Ned to see for himself that with one simple move he could win. A small hand hovered over the left of the board. Jonah felt disappointed. Ned had missed the obvious. He cleared his throat to attract Ned's attention, and looked meaningfully at the other side of the board. A moment passed before Ned took the hint. "'but then his hand moved towards one of his kings, "'and with a burst of gleeful realisation "'he claimed the last of Gabriel's pieces. "'He was gracious in his victory. "'He sat back in his chair and smiled. "'Mr Liberty, I think you've lost.' "'Gabriel stared at the board and slowly smiled. "'Clearly I've been too good a teacher. "'Well done, young man.' "'He brought his hands together "'and gave him a short round of applause.' Jonah noticed that each clap made his father wince. Leaning forward in his chair and repositioning his triumphant army, Ned said, ''Can we play again?'' Gabriel groaned, ''Not now, maybe after lunch. My poor old brain needs a rest. You run along and tell your mother what a smart lad you are while I have a chat with my son. I doubt I'll need my brain for that.'' Alone and expecting his father's mood to change, Jonas started setting out the board, ready for another game. He said, Do you remember teaching me to play? Gabriel pushed himself to his feet, setting off a crackle of dry joints. Like it was yesterday. And talking of yesterday, I imagine that's why you're here, isn't it? Come to get the news straight from the horse's mouth about my approaching marriage, I presume. The last of the draftsmen lined up. Jonas said, Why are you doing this, Dad? What? Marrying the delectable Miss Costello? Wouldn't you if you had the opportunity? Joan had let one conversation slip out of his grasp and had no intention of this one going the same way. We're not talking about me, Dad, he said firmly. We're discussing why you're pretending to Casper that you're marrying the delectable Miss Costello as you describe her. Who said anything about pretending? I did. It's another of your games, isn't it? I'll say this for you, Jonah. You're verging on the astute. So why taunt Casper? Because it was fun. You should have seen the feckless little runt. I thought he was going to pass out on me with shock. I haven't enjoyed myself so much in years. But is it right to do so at somebody else's expense? Gabriel waved aside the implied criticism. What do I care for Casper's finer feelings? When did he or damsel ever care about mine, eh? Am I not to be included in that condemnation? Carry on with this interrogation, and you might well find yourself top of the list. His father turned abruptly and looked out of the window. Damn! It started raining. I was hoping to take young Ned for a walk later on. Do you want to stay for lunch, or do you have something better to do? Jonas stood next to his father and stared through the dirty glass at the heavy downpour that was flattening the daffodils on the sloping lawn. He couldn't remember the last time his father had made an invitation so spontaneously. He didn't know how or why, but it felt as though a small bridge had just been crossed. Prepared to take whatever was on offer, he said, ''Lunch would be great, thanks. Do you want me to see to it while you prepare yourself for another whipping at the hands of your protégé?'' Upstairs, in what had been Val Liberty's bedroom, Clara was sorting through the dead woman's belongings. She had wondered who had been responsible for the clutter in the house, and now felt sure she had found the culprit. The second Mrs Liberty had been an inveterate hoarder. Judging from the drawers, cupboards, bedside cabinets and wardrobes, she had never thrown anything away. She had kept all sorts of curious things, train tickets to Sheffield and Manchester, Dental appointment cards, hairdresser's receipts, shopping lists, bent hairpins, ancient suspender belts, empty scent bottles, hairbrushes, crumbling bath cubes, packs of safety pins and half-used tubes of hand cream. There was a collection of hot water bottles, so old and perished they had become glued together into that kind of rubbery collage the Tate Modern might exhibit. There were several boxes of calm and heated rollers, as well as one of those inflatable hood devices for drying your hair. Mr Liberty had given her carte blanche to get rid of everything. None of it's of any use to me, so you might just as well ditch the lot, he had said. This was after she'd arrived for work first thing that morning, and told him she wanted a change from scrubbing and polishing. Ah huh trying to get out of the heavy-duty work so you can take it easy with the light stuff, are you? Keep the words of love and kindness for your family, Mr. Liberty. Did you enjoy your late night cigar and brandy session with your son? He had cracked the air with a bellow of laughter. Immensely. I'll tell you about it later when I bring you your remembrances. Ned, my boy, you stay with me. Today's the day you learn to play drafts. Folding yet another thick woollen skirt and adding it to the bag of clothes she had already sorted, there were two piles one designed for a charity shop and the other for the skip. Clara thought how funny it was that the three of them had slipped into such an unlikely but easy-going routine. Ned was perfectly at home with Mr Liberty, whom he probably regarded as a temporary grandfather, which was fine by her, because, as far as she could see, they were all getting something out of the week. Mr Liberty was getting spring-cleaned, Ned was being entertained and taught to play drafts, and she was getting paid enough to convince herself that she hadn't been mad in taking on such an extraordinary assignment. Last night, after reading Ned a bedtime story, she'd written her first postcard home to Louise and the gang. I can't believe it's only a week since Ned and I set off in Winnie. It feels like we've been away forever, having the most unbelievable time. Not quite what I had in mind, but lots of fun all the same. We're doing missionary work, I'll explain later. Staying with a crazy man in the Peak District. So far north for you, Louise, you'd need a pocket phrase book. Ned is having the time of his life. He's four going on 14 now. More news in the next card. Love to everyone, Clara. P.S. Missing work? Get real. She deliberately admitted to mention that she had turned herself into a cleaner for a week because she knew that Louise would dispatch David to fetch her home. With the rails of the first wardrobe empty now, she stood on a chair to clear out the stuff from the top shelf. She found a battered hat box hidden beneath the pink candlewick bedspread. It was quite heavy, so she took off the lid and found that it contained a bundle of large notebooks. She climbed down, sat on the bed and pulled at the frayed satin ribbon that held them together. Picking one at random, she opened it, expecting to find nothing more interesting than a rambling extension of the cluttered woman she had so far glimpsed, a variety of recipes for prize-winning chutney perhaps. But she saw straight away that what she had in her hands was a diary. She knew she shouldn't, but she couldn't stop herself reading the erratic writing that covered the line pages. Sunday 16th September There are times when I hate this dreadful house. I know that sounds overly dramatic, but there it is. That's how I feel today. I warned Gabriel something like this would happen, that Casper wasn't above such an appalling act of treachery, but, as usual, the stubborn old fool refused to do anything about it. They're grown men. They should be able to deal with this themselves, he said, when I told him this evening what had been going on. No man is ever fully grown, I said, but he just gave me one of his baleful looks and went off to his wretched library. The trouble started the moment Casper and that dim girlfriend of his, whose name escapes me, I doubt we'll ever see her again, so it doesn't really matter, arrived to celebrate Jonah and Emily's engagement. During dinner I could see what Casper was up to. I've seen him do it countless times before, so I could recognise the signs. I knew that no good would come of the weekend, and that it was my fault. It was me who had insisted on everyone being present. As soon as that silly girl Emily started giggling, I knew she'd been taken in. Poor Jonah. he just sat there quietly seething, his head down, his mood darkening by the second. Do something, I wanted to shout at him, but he didn't. he just let his brother walk all over him, as he always has. He's frightened of him, I know, frightened of Damson too, and Damson could see what Casper was up to, and I think that maybe even she was a little shocked, but she made no attempt to stop him. She's the only one who can rein him in, and in doing nothing, she condoned his behaviour. Though, to be fair, she's so caught up in herself, she probably doesn't care. Half the time, I can't understand what she's talking about. She hasn't got enough to do, of course, that's the real problem. If she had some real direction in her life, she wouldn't be like this, so airy-fairy. By lunchtime today, it was all over. Jonah left without saying a word. I watched him from the kitchen window as he drove out of the courtyard. I don't think I've ever seen anyone so angry and so unable to express themselves. Minutes later, Casper's girlfriend came hobbling into the house in my borrowed boots, and glory be, there's a creature who can express herself. Such language! Calls herself a model too, not a model of decorum, that much is clear. From what I could gather from her highly colourful language, she and Jonah had seen Casper kissing Emily in Jonah's favourite haunt by the rocks, where he likes to go and think. And while she waited for Casper and Emily to reappear, she phoned for a taxi and packed her bag. When Casper did deign to show his face, she stabbed it hard for him and left. Can't say I blame her. Emily, the stupid girl, had the grace to look ashamed of what she had done, but Casper was his normal, arrogant self. "'Well,' he said, in that annoyingly cocky voice of his, "'I know it's wrong, but my hand always itches to slap him when he puts that voice on. "'There goes a girl with some spirit. "'I wish her next sparring partner all the luck in the world.' He then had the gall to say to me, "Val, old love, it looks like lunch is off. Another time, perhaps?' And during all this commotion, where was Gabriel? Where he always is. Hiding in the library, of course. Why won't he deal with his family? Why does he always leave it to me? I'm tired of it, truly I am. I often wonder what would become of them all if I was no longer here. A flurry of footsteps out on the landing had Clara shoving the books back into the hatbox, slapping the lid on it and standing guiltily to attention. The door flew open and in came Ned. Mummy, guess what? I beat Mr Liberty at drafts. Aren't you the clever one? She went to him, knelt on the floor and hugged him. Wriggling out of her grasp and staring intently at her face, he said, It's a real grown-up game, Mummy, and I still won. I did, really, I did. No help from anyone. Well, maybe a tiny bit from Mr Liberty's son. She kissed the top of his nose, basking in the shining rays of his euphoria. "'Do you want to help me up here now, "'or would that be too boring?' He looked around the room, eyeing it for the fun factor. His gaze slid over to the piles of clothes, and he shook his head. "'I'll do my scrapbook downstairs with Mr Liberty.' He was already moving towards the door. "'Okay then, but don't make a nuisance of yourself, will you?' "'I won't.' "'Oh, and while you're with Mr Liberty,' Remind him to bring me up some coffee. It's well past eleven. As soon as she was alone again, Clara slipped the lid off the hat box and reached for another diary. Just a couple of pages, she told herself. Friday, 2nd December. Well, he's finally done it. I never thought he would, but he's sold up, and I know he feels terrible about it. He won't say anything, of course, but the whole thing has taken a far greater toll on him than he will ever admit to and why did he have to sell to a rival firm of engineers a firm he's despised for as long as i can remember a firm that will th- strip his business for its assets and throw the rest of it to the dogs it's as if he's done it deliberately as though out of spite he wants the whole thing to implode on itself he says he doesn't care what happens to it i've washed my hands of it he said this afternoon when he came home after his meeting "'with the lawyers and accountants "'and poured himself a large glass "'of his most expensive malt whisky. "'But I simply can't believe he meant it. "'What about all those men and women "'who have worked so loyally for you?' "'I asked him. "'Don't you care what will happen to them?' "'He grunted something I couldn't make out "'and told me I didn't understand. "'Maybe I don't, but what I do understand "'is that what Gabriel devoted his life to "'and his father before him has to mean something. I also understand how much it hurts him that none of his children wanted to step into his shoes. He so badly wanted at least one of them to do that. But I can see it from their point of view too. They have their own dreams to follow. Why does he always have to take things so personally? Again, the sound of footsteps, less hurried ones this time, had Clara furtively hiding the diary. She stuffed it back into the hatbox, and pretended to be folding a matted, fair sweater. Dad sent me up with your elevenses and an apology for being late. It was Jonah with a mug and a plate of ginger nuts. He handed her the mug and put the plate on the dressing table, clearing a space for it among the mess. How's it going? Slowly. He looked about the room. I guess it's easier if you detached from it. I know I'd struggle to be objective. I did try to do it for Dad, but it was probably too soon for him. He settled his gaze on the sweater she had just folded. I remember Val knitting that. It was a Christmas present for Dad, but it shrank and ended up fitting her better than him. She only ever wore it in the garden. Oh, and if it helps things between us, apparently the engagement's off. For a moment, she thought he was referring to what she had just been reading in the diary. The engagement between him and Emily. But then she realised he couldn't possibly be talking about that. Sorry? He shrugged. It's okay, you don't have to carry on with the game anymore. Dad's told me the truth. It was a wind-up for my brother's benefit last night. Oh, so I don't even get the chance to be jilted at the altar? How disappointing! And to think I was so looking forward to being your wicked stepmother. Given the room they were in and its contents... Clara wished she hadn't said that. Her cheeks burned. How could she have been so insensitive? He spoke before she could apologise. Not all stepmothers are wicked, you know. I'm sorry. Wanting to make good the damage, and intrigued by the entries in the diary, she said, "What What was your stepmother like? He hesitated fractionally. Then he said, To put up with us liberties, Val was two parts saint and one part sergeant major. On reflection, I think we gave her a terrible time. I don't think she was always very happy. Though she couldn't comment on its accuracy, she was impressed by the incisiveness of his reply. How old were you when she married your father? she asked. He moved away from the bed, went over to the window. A little younger than Ned, and before you ask, no, I can't remember a time before that. Not even your real mother? Not likely, given that it was my birth that killed her. Once more, Clara wished she could retract her words. Oh dear, I'm sorry. I keep putting my foot in it. Oh dear, indeed. It's quite the party stopper, that line, isn't it? He was moving again, this time towards the door. Don't forget your coffee. Lunch is in an hour, so you'd better not scoff too many ginger nuts or you'll upset Chef and we all know the consequences of annoying your father. Sorry to disappoint you, but it's not my father's culinary delights you're being treated to. Lunch is on me. For the next hour, Clara worked doubly fast to make up for the time she'd spent reading. But all the time she was sorting through Val Liberty's things, she kept thinking what kind of a woman she must have been to take on such a family. What an enormous challenge she had accepted the day she had agreed to marry Mr Liberty or Gabriel as she now knew him as a widower with three young children who between them must have tested her love and patience beyond endurance. Clara had done many things in her life of which she had later thought better but this one was perhaps the most unworthy. She knew she had no right to do it but she was hooked. Having begun to see the Liberty family in a new light, she wanted to know more, understand them better. She took the diaries from the hat box and slipped them into a bag, with the intention of reading them later. She would return them to Mermaid House tomorrow morning, with no one else the wiser. Where would be the harm in that? She was only borrowing them. So, Gabriel just can't resist winding Casper up by creating a web of deceit around his worst case scenario, the fear of Gabriel marrying again and Casper losing out of his share of mermaid house. But given Casper's behaviour, you can't really blame Gabriel, can you? Jonah shows a little more sense and sees right through the charade, but is obviously intrigued by the connection between his father and Clara. Clara is now equally intrigued with Gabriel and his three children as seen through the experiences retold in Val's diaries. But can any good come from reading other people's private thoughts? Hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Me a Story with Precious Time by Erica James. Tune in next time as we read on.